Good morning. Today's reading from the Word of God come from First uh, Corinthians chapter five, verses one through five and nine through thirteen. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's Corinthians, First Corinthians chapter five, verses one through five and nine through thirteen. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join Kids Crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out your fellowship, out of your fellowship, the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you're assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual and moral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Anchor Bay Church. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. That scripture is a doozy, huh? Um, well, one of the things that we like to do before we dive into God's word is just take a moment to be quiet before the Lord, to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning with whatever we're thinking about or whatever is on our hearts. And we're actually going to take a little bit of extra time this morning uh, in silence just because we want to get used to being silent before God. We want to, even if it's sometimes a little bit uncomfortable uh, to be quiet before the Lord, we want to give space for the Holy Spirit to speak to us and invite us in that space. So if it feels a little bit longer than normal, that's why. We're going to try to increase our capacity for silence a little bit moving forward. So let's be quiet together, and I will open us in a word of prayer after a moment.
God, we come to you and we expect good news this morning. And we know that even in the harder passages, you are redeeming and transforming and changing us into people who look more like Jesus, and that is really good news. And so we thank you for that. And we thank you for scripture that even challenges us. We ask that we would be challenged, but also invited this morning to know you better and to be healed by you and to heal one another. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing in our sermon series that we've been calling Elephants in the Church, Hot Topics in the Corinthian Letters. And so far this fall we have covered topics like identity, culture, church splits, wisdom, success. And this morning's topic is especially different, so I thought I'd just bring back up our comfort animal, Ziggy, to be with us this morning. Um, This morning's passage is one of the tougher passages in 1 Corinthians because it's about something that we don't super, super like to talk about in the church, sin and judgment. The truth is, the Bible talks about judgment all the time, and it talks about judgment like it's a good thing, hundreds of times, in fact. The the people who wrote scripture loved the idea of judgment for sin. The psalmist longed for God to hurry up and judge. The Old Testament prophets begged God to come back and judge, bring true judgment. The New Testament talks about Jesus' second coming when God will come to judge the earth 300 times, over 300 times. One in 13 verses in the New Testament talk about Jesus coming back to judge the living and the dead. And here's the thing, back then, they actually believed that God's judgment was good news. It's not always easy news, but it's intended to be good news. And so maybe this morning we can dive into a difficult and challenging passage with the expectation that God can bring a fresh word to us this morning of invitation, that even judgment, even something like that, that we don't always love to talk about, can be part of the good news of Jesus. So if you brought your Bible, that, Bibles, I'd invite you to open up with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, and we're off. Not much of a cold open this morning. We are just going to dive right in. So if you have already been with us this fall, you might already have kind of an idea of, of what the city of Corinth was like, but we'll just do a little quick recap. So Corinth was a famous city back then. It was a port city, and Corinth had a reputation. It was famous for its loose morals and its wild passion. I shared a few weeks ago that there was a slang word in the Greco-Roman world for sleeping around, and that word was Corinthiazo. Basically, if you had a reputation for sleeping around or for loose sexual morals, people said you were Corinthian. Corinth was extremely lax on its sexual morality. When it came to how you used your body, basically you could get away with almost anything. Almost. But not quite everything. The Corinthian culture was pretty much comfortable with pretty much anything, but they still had lines that you didn't cross. They still had taboos. They still had illicit things that you would never think to do. And in our passage this morning, to Paul's horror, there is a sexual scandal happening in the church that even the Corinthians would never think to do. They would not be comfortable with. Even the people of Corinth were looking at what was happening in the church, and they were saying, whoa, that is crossing a line. So let's start with verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So basically, there's this guy in the church and he's having an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmom. 
And we mentioned a few weeks ago that honor and shame were a big deal in the ancient world, and something like this would have been incredibly shameful. It would have brought dishonor to this man's whole household, to his father, to their family line, and that was a really big deal. And so Paul is naming that that is not okay. But this scandal isn't the only thing that Paul is talking about here. It's not the only issue. It's really just a symptom of this disease that is starting to spread all around the Corinthian church. Not only are the church leaders in Corinth acting like this isn't even a problem, but they're apparently bragging that it's happening in their church. It's like they're talking about this man's sexual choices to, to demonstrate how spiritually grown up they all are. Apparently, they were convinced that because of their freedom in Christ, they were beyond all those primitive categories of good and evil, and now they can just do whatever they want. So, a few questions rise up out of this passage. The first are questions about sex. What is sex for, and where do we draw the line, and how do we know how to draw it? Now, if you grew up in the church, or even if you just watch the news, you know that the church has historically had a fairly complicated relationship with sex. Historically, Christians have seemed both simultaneously obsessed with sex and at the same time pretty terrified of it, as if sex and faith are in conflict, or worse, that they're in competition. Clearly, we need a better framework for how to understand sex in the church. So we're actually going to spend the first three weeks in November talking about sex from the perspective of 1 Corinthians in a little 1 Corinthians mini-series that one of our board members has dubbed Sexvember. So I'm going to send out an email in advance to prepare us a little bit more for that mini-series because this is sensitive. It is sensitive for a lot of us for a lot of reasons. Sexuality is intended to be about joy and intimacy and connection, but lots of us have experienced or been taught about it differently. And it's been the cause of, of pain, rejection, confusion, and even trauma. So conversations around sex can be very tender for a lot of us. We want you to know what to expect going in. We also aren't gonna be live streaming those services. We're not gonna be live streaming the first three services in November. This is a personal and intimate and embodied topic for all of us, even our preachers. And we want to have a conversation as an embodied community who already knows and loves each other, rather than just putting out content for the general internet. So I would encourage you to make it a point to show up for those services in person. Now, if you aren't able to make it one week, we get it, or if, if it feels like it might be too triggering for you, we will be recording those sermons, and we're happy to email them out to you by request if you are a member of this community. So that's kind of a little bit about what to expect. I'll send more out later. So that's the first question that comes out of this passage. How do we approach sex, and what is it for? And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that next month. But the second question that comes out of this passage, and our elephant for this morning, is about what we do with sin in general, because Paul is addressing a few different types of sin in this passage. He talks about sexual sin, but then he also talks about sins of pride and boasting and abuse. And so we're just going to talk about sin in general and what to do when we see ongoing sin happening in the church. Now, that last phrase, in the church, is important here in this passage. In this passage, Paul is not concerned with what's going on in the general world. He's not here to condemn all the sexual practices and lifestyle choices of everyone everywhere. Look at verse 12. He says, What business of mine, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. 
Paul isn't calling Christians to shout as loudly as we can in the streets to everyone who behaves immorally according to the Christian ethic and tell them they're all going to hell. He's not calling Christians to stand on the street corners with bullhorns to condemn and scare everyone who hasn't decided to follow Jesus. Paul's concern in this passage is with us. It's about people who claim to follow Christ and who are called into a way of life that is holy and set apart. So this morning, we're not talking about the sin out there. We're talking about the sin in here. So what do you think of when you hear that word sin? What words or phrases or images come to mind for you? Well, I grew up in the church, and when I was growing up, I kind of just assumed that sin was like doing bad stuff. Sometimes I heard, to, heard it referred to as rebellion against God, and I was told that we were rebellious sinners. And like, I don't know, I never really identified with that idea growing up. I was a pretty good kid. I was sweet, and I was nice, and I memorized Bible verses on my own, and I volunteered with the younger kids in Sunday school. I didn't do a lot of big, fat, rebellious sinning. Okay. I did steal some gum from a drugstore a couple of times. Once I pushed my sibling down the stairs for no reason, just because I was curious to see what would happen. (laughs) I got a timeout in kindergarten once, but that was totally Ashley's fault. Like, I was trying to listen, and she kept talking at me during reading group and got us both in trouble. But all in all, I was a pretty good kid. So the idea that I was some rebellious, rotten sinner wasn't super easy for me to connect with. And that's true for a lot of us in the way that we tend to frame sin in the Christian church. Think about how they frame it in Japan. The Japanese translation for the word sin is their word for crime, which Pastor Jean taught to me yesterday. A lot of Japanese people don't really identify with that because it's such a law-abiding culture. So what about you? What have you been taught about the word sin? Has it been framed to you like it's a disruption of shalom? Maybe it's, it's active participation in something other than God's intention for you. Maybe you've heard that archery term. It's an archery term that you're missing the mark. Maybe it's a really decadent, chocolatey dessert. Now, it's all true, and it's all biblical, except, me, except for maybe the dessert one. But some of us need a different framework for how to understand that word sin. And I, I really like the description uh, by British writer Francis Spuford, how he describes sin in his book, Unapologetic, why despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense. Has anyone read this book? It's a lot of fun. Levi, Levi and I are reading it. Um, so Francis Spuford defines sin simply as our active inclination to break stuff. Our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here including moods, promises, relationships we care about, and our own well-being and other people's, as well as material objects whose high gloss positively seems to invite a big fat scratch. You and I have all broken something. Individuals break stuff. That's what we call individual sin. And whole communities can break stuff. Cultures and governments and schools and families and churches can break stuff. That's what we call corporate or systemic sin. And at some point or another, if we're paying attention enough, we will all recognize that kind of thing happening in ourselves. You might recognize it in a moment of what feels like a big failure when a marriage or a friendship ends because of our our angry or addictive tendencies or our abusive tendencies. When that little social drinking habit starts to feel like a lot more than that, 
When we, when we click on a link without even thinking about it, and that leads us to another link, which leads us to another link, and before we know it, our brains are taking us to places, and we realize uh, we don't even have any say in where we're headed online anymore. But sin isn't always all that dramatic either. Sin can show up in just a small lapse of judgment, a, a teensy little neglect of something that's important to us. It can show up in a, an ungenerous assumption that we make about someone else in our heads, when we share information that's not ours to share, when we make a, a hurtful comment without thinking about it. It could show up in a broken promise or a tiny spin that we do on a story to make ourselves look better or maybe in our passive participation in systems or institutions that hurt people that we will never meet. Ultimately, sin shows up in the distance between how we live and how God intends us to live, and we all do it. So let's fly back to Corinth 2,000 years ago. Someone in the church is breaking stuff. They're sinning. In fact, some ones in the church are sinning, and what's worse is that the people who are sinning have no intention of stopping their sinning. It's one thing for us to show up and say, hey, I recognize this. I don't want to do this anymore, so I'm here to own it, and I'm here to name it and say I'm sorry for it and learn how to do differently. And it's quite another thing. This is what's happening in the church in Corinth to say, yeah, I'm sinning. So what? I can do whatever I want whenever I want to do it because I'm saved by grace now. So what do we do when we see sin happening in the church? Well, in those moments, we have a couple of options. We could just let it go. We could turn the other way. Because who am I to tell you how you should live? You want to flirt with having an affair? That's none of my business. You want to live with those habits? That is up to you. You want to push people away with your bossiness or your busyness or your lack of boundaries? You do you. And we might not agree with their choices, but we don't want to hurt their feelings. We don't want to lose their friendship. We don't want to come across as critical. So we tell them what they want to hear. We minimize the reality of the pain that they have caused. And lots of us, we act like that's how God is too, or that's how God should be. God is just a big old softie who tolerates everything and everyone all the time. All those old-fashioned moral standards, yeah, don't worry about those. Those are done away with because of the cross. As long as it feels good, it's probably okay. So you do what feels right for you. And even if this is, isn't our view of God, this is how we are expected to be in our culture today. In our culture, accepting someone else also means affirming everything that they do and everything that they believe and every choice that they make. Anything else is judgmental and hypocritical and bigoted. And if there's anything that I do not want to be in our culture, it is judgmental and hypocritical and bigoted. But that brings up the question, aren't there things that are happening in our world or people that, that are doing things in our world that you believe are wrong? no matter what they believe about what they are doing, things that you think they should stop doing? When we let anything go, what we're really doing is we're really just tolerating sin. We're tolerating hurt. We're tolerating pain. We're tolerating destructive choices that move people that we love away from being the people that God intends them to be. And we let the bullies keep on bullying and the gossips keep on gossiping, and the abusers keep on abusing, and we end up with churches with narcissism and power plays and greed running rampant and unchecked. Because we don't, we don't want to get in the middle of that. And here's the hard part. 
If I'm too afraid to be honest with you about your blind spots, your sin, the truth of where you need to grow, then I'm probably too afraid to face my own reflection too. I'll avoid my own sin too, my own collusion in the problems. I'll tolerate things in myself that need changing. I'll tell myself it's not that big a deal. And we all stay stuck where we are. So that's one option. We just ignore it. We minimize it. We say it's not that big of a deal. And lots of us in the church do that. But there is another option that lots of us in the church choose too. Some of us have no problem pointing out the sins and faults of others. We love it. We want to make sure that everything is fair, that things are right, that justice is served. And we are convinced that it is our job to correct it when it isn't. Sure, people around us are loved by God. Sure, they're saved by grace, but they also need to know they're sinners, and we are probably the ones to tell them. And lots of us, we act like that's how God is too, or how God should be. God has high standards, right? And if we don't live up to those standards, we'll pay for it. So we better tell everyone where they're not measuring up. But here's the thing. There is a difference between the holy loving judgment of sin that we see in scripture and the judgmentalism that we so often see in the church and in ourselves. Loving, holy judgment in the church is intended to be about mutual discernment about what is and what is not okay. It's about helping people see better how God calls them to be and then helping them grow into that. It's about loving people back to health. Judgmentalism, on the other hand, is not about helping people grow. It's about condemning them. It's punitive. It's punishing. It's self-righteous. But godly judgment always, always has as its goal transformation, restoration, and invitation. It's about pulling people out of their tendencies to break stuff and into a better life, into a holy life, a holistic life. And lots of Christians and churches, we confuse those two things, holy judgment and judgmentalism. But maybe, maybe what we need is another way. And that other way is what Jesus shows us all over the Gospels. All over the Gospels. We see Jesus throwing open his arms and his heart to sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and prodigals, to people just like you and me. And at the same time, he calls out the lying and hypocrisy of the religious leaders. He names it. He boldly speaks up for what's right. He declares what's wrong. He prophesies judgment. He sets up standards. And one day on the cross, he calls it all finished. All the sin and all the shame, yours and mine, our individual tendencies to break stuff and our corporate collective tendencies to break stuff together. And he puts it all to death with him. And then three days later, he rose from the dead and invited us to live a new life, his life, a life as saints. And our invitation on this side of the cross and the empty tomb, our individual invitation and our collective invitation as the global church is to change and to transform into people who look like Jesus. The gospel is not an endless reminder of all the ways that we've broken stuff. And it's not a list of things that we need to do to avoid breaking more stuff. It's the named reality that we have all broken stuff. But it's also the named reality that if we follow Jesus, we get put back together again. The gospel is not a free pass that says that everything you do and did and will do is okay. 
The gospel is the grace that gives me eternal life at the empty tomb because God has chosen to love me anyway. And that's true for everyone around us. And if we believe that, if we start to believe that and live that out, it can have a dramatic impact on how we approach sin when we see it happening in the church. This means that the story doesn't start with sin, and the story doesn't end with sin. The story starts and ends with God's invitation always to be saints. If you remember from chapter 1, Paul opens his, letters by calling, his letter by calling the Corinthians saints. Saints of the church of God in Corinth. Not sinners, not a bunch of people broken stuff, but saints. People bought with a price. People in whom God's Holy Spirit dwells. That is their primary, fundamental, core identity. And when we can believe that about ourselves and about each other, then we can look at all the ways that we aren't living into that yet, and we don't have to be afraid of it. We can name it, we can own it, we can address it, knowing that that sin does not define us. Christ does. And in him, we are saints. And we're made for something better than the sin and the shame that we keep returning to. If we ignore it, if we say that it's okay, if we pretend that it's not there, if we don't call each other into something better, then we are undervaluing the saints that God has called us to be. I love how Francis Spuford says it. He says, taking the things people do wrong seriously is part of taking them seriously. It's part of letting their actions have weight. It's part of letting their lives tell a life story with consequences and losses and gains rather than just being a flurry of events. So in those moments, in those moments when we have to name our sin or another person's sin, the goal of holy judgment when it's done in love is restoration, not condemnation. It's healing. It's not punishment. And it's always meant to be good news. Hey, you're a saint. Now live like one. I remember a few years ago, I was making some chili for dinner, and I was opening a tomato can, and I cut, I cut my hand while I was opening the can. And one of my friends and fellow Anchor Bay members, Hillary Linehan, is a nurse practitioner, and she loves taking care of wounds. It's like her favorite thing. And before I get into the story, uh, Hillary's not here this morning, but she knows that I'm sharing this story. Anytime that we share a story about a person at Anchor Bay, we always ask their permission first. So you never have to worry that you're going to be like surprised by hearing about yourself in a sermon. So I asked Hillary if I could share the story. She said it's okay. Um, so, so Hillary's a nurse practitioner. She loves wound care. And I'm bleeding in my kitchen, and so I, I thought I would send her a picture of my wound. And so I texted her a picture of my cut because I thought she'd like to see it, and she responded, I'll be over at your house in five minutes. Now, I hadn't asked Hillary to come over. I wasn't, like, texting her for a medical house call. I just thought she'd like to see a picture of me bleeding all over my kitchen. Who wouldn't? But when she got to my house, Hillary said that the cut looked pretty deep. And it probably needed some additional care than just the Band-Aid that I had been planning on putting on it. And that she carefully bandaged up my hand so that it could properly heal. Now this scenario could have gone a couple of different ways. Now imagine if I texted Hillary a picture of my cut and she responded by telling me how beautiful and wonderful and cool the cut was. Or what if she ignored the picture even though she saw it and she could see that I needed additional medical care? In, in either scenario, my hand would have just continued bleeding all over my kitchen and might have developed an infection or a scar. 
Or imagine that Hillary had responded by condemning me for having cut myself. What if rather than helping me get the care I needed, she came over and she shamed me for how bloody my hand had gotten? What if she looked at my hand and she was like, uh, gross, and she walked away because she was just too pure to be around all that blood? What if she did that? I would never tell Hillary if I was ever bleeding ever again, especially because I know that sometimes Hillary gets cuts. How hypocritical would that be? No, I didn't need someone to flatter me about having hurt myself. I didn't need someone to ignore the fact that I had hurt myself. And I didn't need someone to shame me for having hurt myself either. Everyone bleeds sometimes. What I needed, what I needed was for someone to help me understand how bad my cut actually was, and then to show up and lovingly and carefully help me heal. That's what we need for our sin. The first thing that we need to do is we need to return to that identity over and over again as saints of Christ, as whole people, as healed people. We have to return to that identity over and over again because we're prone to forget so that we can be reminded of who God calls us to be and how God calls us to live. And then we need to be honest about our own propensity to mess that up sometimes too. We need to name the reality that everyone everywhere who calls on the name of Jesus still sins in this life. You do, I do, we do, and recognizing sin in myself can give me compassion for you when I see it in you too. All of us bleed, and we all need healing. So in those instances, when we feel like God might be inviting us to offer some some loving, godly feedback to a person in the church about their sin, we have to do so in the context of a loving, trusting, two-way relationship that first acknowledges that I break stuff too. I could trust Hillary with bandaging up my hand because she has shown me in so many other ways that she loves me, so many other times. And I could trust Hillary to bandage up my wound because there have been times when she's shown me her wounds as well. And so I know that she has firsthand experience being wounded and needing healing. There is no condemnation in that. So I knew my cut would be safe with her because she was showing up to help heal, not to cause me more pain. And by the way, she wants me to know, let you know that she will come and bandage up anyone's wounds at any time. And she said the more gruesome, the better. So... That's our nurse practitioner head of ABC Health. Um, So so first, we, we connect with our identity as saints. We connect with our own sin before we try to point out the sin in others. And then if we do point out someone's sin, we need to start by reminding them of their value, their sainthood, and our love for them with this spoken understanding that this isn't about condemnation because I sin too. And then we show up and we stick around for the healing part. We offer ongoing support. We communicate their value and our love. We're not here to fix them or condemn them or shame them. We're here to help them see themselves as saints of God and support them as they learn to live like saints live because I'm gonna need that support from you sometimes too. Now, what if if my scenario with Hillary had gone still another way? What if Hillary had come over and she, she looked at my cut and she diagnosed it and she offered to bandage it up and I rejected it? What if I told her that I liked my wound as it was, that I wanted to keep bleeding? What if I disagreed with her that it was a wound at all? That's how I want my hand to look. Well, Hillary only has one choice after that. After she has lovingly, helpfully offered to help me heal and I've refused, Hillary's only option is to turn around and go home and leave my wound untreated. And that's what's happening in our story in Corinth. 
Sometimes the sad reality is that people are more committed to their sin than they are to healing from their sin. And we can't work on someone's sin more than they will. Sometimes for reasons we may not be able to diagnose or understand, sometimes people can't or won't change their harmful or destructive or abusive behavior in this life. They will continue to choose it over and over again. The book of Proverbs says it like this, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. Sometimes people return to their vomit as a dog does again and again and again. And here's the thing, you don't have to be there when they do. You don't have to be there when they do. When someone can't or won't hear feedback, or when they can't or won't change their harmful behavior, we might not have any other option but to let them go their own way with the wound untreated. You can be an ocean of compassion and grace and love, and at the same time, you can have very strong boundaries about how often and in what ways you interact with people who insist on their toxic behavior. I like how my best friend, Brene Brown, describes boundaries. (laughs) She says simply, boundary setting is making clear what is okay and what is not okay. Boundary setting is making clear what is okay and what is not okay. And so in some cases, our only option may be to set really hard boundaries around what our future relationship can look like. And this is especially true in the case of abuse. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Abuse of any kind is never okay. And if you are in a situation where you are being abused or there's maybe a a confusing power dynamic, you're not sure if it's abuse or not, you may not be the right person to stick around and help that person heal from their sin. You may not even be the right person to point it out. That may not be a safe scenario for you to be in, but the church can help point it out. The church can stand with you and with that person in redefining what your relationship can look like moving forward and if it can even continue at all. And if that person insists on the abuse, then the church can help you get connected with resources and set boundaries to protect you from that abuse. So in some cases, in those cases, when someone is insisting on their sin, we may have to let them go their own way. And even this, even this is intended to be good news for them and for the church. It's like Paul is saying, do do whatever you can to wake this person up. Do it in love and not in condemnation. Offer them support. Stand by them as they heal. And if they refuse, you have to let them go. Paul actually says to put them out of the fellowship. Excuse me. Put this man out of the fellowship. If this person insists on their behavior, or if they can no longer control it, then we may have to say, we love you, but you can't do that here. When this happens in a church, when a church has to ask a person to leave because of their behavior, it is always very complicated and it's always very painful. And some of you know that we've, we've been through that here at Anchor Bay twice. One of those things happened very recently, last spring. It is a drastic measure and it never happens lightly. It is always a last resort. There is a specific process for it and it's always painful. We grieve the loss of those members. Paul says to mourn that when that happens because we love them and we want better for them as saints of God. So even when this happens, the hope is always, always for that person's continued transformation into their identity as saints. That's what Paul is getting at here in this passage. To put someone out of the community is not about punishing them. It's about letting them experience the full consequences of their actions in the world. The stunning twist 
is that when Paul says, put them out of your fellowship, it's all for their good. The point of this whole thing is to allow them to live with the full consequences of their choices and the hope, hopeful that being confronted with those choices will finally get their attention. Because the promise for all of us who follow Christ is that even though we still have a tendency to break stuff in this life, God will one day, once and for all, put us back together. There's this con concept in Japanese art that I love called kintsugi. I've talked about this before, but when a piece of pottery gets broken, artists will bond the pieces together again by aggrandizing the cracks with gold. And so you get all these beautiful pieces of pottery with cracks all over them, but the gold shines through all the broken places. The Japanese believe that the stories of brokenness that you can see through the gold make the pottery even more beautiful than it was before. It's the same way with Jesus. When we're fractured, when we fracture others, he offers to aggrandize those broken pieces with himself. Jesus doesn't throw away our broken stuff. He doesn't ignore it, avoid it, shame it, or pretend like it isn't there. Instead, he names what's broken, and then he fills us with his spirit so that we can be made whole. Hey, you're a saint. You are filled with God's own spirit alive in you. Now live like that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the good news that we can find an experience even in what looks or feels like bad news. We pray that you would make us into a kind of community that can be honest and authentic about our sin and about one another's sin without fear of judgmental condemnation. Instead, we ask that you would form us into a kind of community that is constantly pulling one another and ourselves into the saints that you've created us to be in loving and holistic and invitational ways. And we pray that that would be a witness to the world. We love you. We offer this time to you as an act of our worship. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.